Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, December 5th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to lately. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers Y. Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So Peter is still out uh, at Disney World. I think he's traveling today, coming back, so he should be back tomorrow. Uh, but let's kick things off and talk about what we've been doing. HT, you're back from Vietnam. Welcome back. I'm back. So how back, was it? Baby. It was great. Um, I was gone for two weeks, and um, I went. I was going. I went there with my grandmother, and uh, I stayed at my aunt's place in Hanoi. And I mostly stayed around Hanoi um, because I was just kind of mostly there to chaperone my um, my grandmother. Um, but I took a couple of day trips out of Hanoi for uh, the two weeks I was there. I went to first. I went to Dung Lam, which is an ancient village. Uh, like a couple hours outside of Hanoi. Uh, and I went to Batjang as well, which is a ceramic village. Um, or rather, it's a village that specializes in ceramics. And you can do a pottery class and everything there. And I also went to Halong Bay, which I went to last time I was in Vietnam. And um, a mountain village called Sapa. And it was, it was just great being uh, back in Vietnam again after 15 years. 15 years ago was the first time I ever went. And um, I was a bit young back then. I was in middle school. And I didn't fully appreciate the um, traveling there the first time. I remember really being into this Lord of the Rings Game Boy game at the time. And uh, basically spending a lot of time playing that instead of actually exploring the the cities that I, as I should have been. But I got to uh, just uh, wander around and see Hanoi, and um, that was really great because it's changed a lot in the past 15 years. It's become a lot more metropolitan uh, since I've been there. The, I know Vietnam has opened up its economy, so it's um, just very modern now. There are a lot more buildings, a lot higher, uh, though it hasn't really much changed change in the ways of its traffic. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I was there last time, I was just so shocked because there aren't really any traffic laws. Uh, it's major the majority of the vehicles there are motorbikes. 
Um, they're not really like motorcycles. They're more along the lines of kind of a more high-powered scooter in a way, um, but they still go pretty fast. Uh, but most people ride around on these motorbikes uh, versus cars. And I think now it's still, it, there's fewer motorbikes than before, but I think it's still like 80% motorbikes, 20% cars. And because these motorbikes are pretty fast and can weave in and out of traffic, um, they don't really pay attention to uh, stop signs or uh, traffic lights. There used to not be any traffic lights at all. Now there are, but they still don't pay attention to them. <laughs> so when you're crossing the street, it's always kind of a, a gamble for your life. You just, you there aren't really a lot of crosswalks. And if there are, again, they don't pay attention to them. So you kind of just have to just start walking across and um, the motorbikes will swerve around you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was telling Ben earlier that I saw at one point a group of Australians who just were so nervous about crossing the street, they closed their eyes and just walked across, <laughs> <laughs> which is um, actually not a bad idea because like you're not supposed to stop in the middle of the street, just kind of have to keep walking and just like, you know, keep going at it. Cause uh, if you keep stopping and starting, then, then you will ca cause like traffic problems. But yeah, that's always interesting to do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, and it's, it's such a chaotic city and, um, so there's just so much happening, but uh, you get used to it after a while. And uh, I got to ride a motorbike a couple times because in Hanoi and a lot in, and in Southeast Asia in general, um, the common rideshare app there is something called Grab. They don't have Uber or Lyft, um, and Grab applies to both taxi cabs and regular cars and uh, motorbikes. So, and the motorbike is like half the price of a, of a car. So I would often just like, if I was going off the city by myself, I would just get a motorbike and sit in the back. And I took a few too many selfies that my drivers were just like, what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah, that was fun. You might've seen on my Instagram, I, I uh, um, you know, cataloged or, you know, kept track of all my little adventures on my Instagram story, uh, what I was going on. I took a couple of videos from the motorbike and I'm sure it, it looks a little scary. It's not terrible. You don't have anything to, you shouldn't, I kind of have to hang on a little bit to like the little handle in the back. But for the most part, people were just had their hands in their bags. They had like a bunch of boxes or something on their, on their uh, laps or something like that. Like people don't really have much, uh, they kind of throw caution to the wind. And uh, <laughs> at one point I saw like a, a, just a dog chilling in the back of a motorbike too. Like they, it's very normal uh, means of transportation and something that uh, isn't quite as scary as for us people who aren't uh, used to it. Nice. But HT, what the most important question, have you watched the most recent episode of Watchmen set almost entirely in Vietnam, and can you compare? I haven't. Okay. Because it's really bad. I, I don't, well, only Netflix really ha was available in Vietnam because the, the, you know, the VPN is different, and I wasn't <laughs> able to access any of my streaming um, platforms except for Netflix so I was not caught up on Watchmen but of course uh, as I was leaving Hanoi in the airport they were playing the latest episode of Watchmen um, with no sound but with Vietnamese subtitles so I could I understood none of what was being spoiled for me <laughs> awesome well yeah I look forward to you catching up to that show so you can rejoin us on uh, our Watchmen uh, recap episodes um, real quick before we move on from uh, your Vietnam adventures any highlights in terms of food what was your favorite food there I mean the pho there is incredible and in Hanoi is like the north uh, northern part of Vietnam so um, it's generally gets a little bit colder than the rest of the country so a pho is you know jet 
something that they had take a real passion to. Um, and so I had some, some really great uh, Fa which is Bifa, at this place called Fa Ten Li Kwaksu. I'm very sorry for butchering the language that with I, which I grew up with. By the way, um, there was a unique shame I felt in this time around, uh, especially since I had to um, communicate more on my own this time in having a Vietnamese name and not knowing any Vietnamese. And I felt very bad every time I would call a grab and they would see my name and start speaking to me in Vietnamese. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that was that was really interesting. And um, it was even more so than when I was growing up in America and had to correct my substitute teachers every time when they mispronounced my name. This time around, I just felt like more shame about it than before. <laughs> so I'm really sorry that I don't know more Vietnamese and that I could only communicate by saying hi and like food terms. Um, but yeah, pho was great. and. Um, Boon Cha was delicious too. There was a great Boon Cha place uh, near my um, my aunt's uh, house. Boon Cha is um, a rice vermicelli noodle dish with um, uh, uh, pieces of like beef um, or like barbecued pork and barbecued beef. Um, and there's I also had this great Boon Cha as well, which is the same thing, but um, it's a well, it's a sweet and sour soup with with uh, rice vermicelli noodles and uh, fried fish, fried catfish, mm. I think, which was really good. Um, another thing that was really funny that's all the rage now in Hanoi is egg coffee, um, which does sound strange, but it actually tasted very good. Um, it's basically just like Vietnamese coffee with what is essentially a meringue on top. <laughs> Uh, but it's made from egg yolks, not egg whites, which they made a lot of emphasis on because they basically like whip the egg yolks and add a, like a ton of sugar and like vanilla and all these things until it turns white hmm. and uh, they put it on top and it's super sweet, but it tasted delicious. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a new trend that's happening in Hanoi right now. There's a big coffee culture there as well. What else was really good that I ate? Um, oh, there's just like some... Uh, I took. Oh, I also took a Vietnamese cooking class, so I got to uh, to cook a few dishes that I'll be adding into my regular rotation that were like staples of Hanoi as well, which include um, uh, uh, caramelized pork, um, which is delicious, and um, nam, which is uh, basically like spring rolls fried. Man, that sounds really good. <laughs> mm -hmm. awesome. I'm really, I'm just like salivating now thinking about it. Um, oh, before we move on to the next thing, and I'm sorry for talking about Vietnam for so long, but I had a lot, a lot of fun. Um, I want to say that um, uh, if you ha ever find yourself in Vietnam, in uh, Hanoi or like in the northern part of Vietnam, do check out Sapa. It was one of the most beautiful. Um, sort of areas that I visited. I went, it's about four or five hour bus ride from Hanoi. And it's a sort of mountain town um, in the Huang Lianson Mountains uh, in um, uh, where there's a large population of Hmong people. Um, and this is, I, I did a two day, um, one night trek and homestay there. So the homestay is basically just like a nicer hostel and that was it was such an incredible experience even though the time i visited it's a really it was really foggy so i couldn't see a lot but uh i did a trek 
about like six miles the first day, three miles the second day around these sort of mountainous areas in around Sapa. And I got to visit a lot of the villages around there and see the uh, rice terrace paddies all around the mountains. And it's really gorgeous and just uh, such a beautiful um, uh, picture of of Vietnamese like rural communities as well as the really rich um, ethnic communities around Vietnam. There are a lot of them and uh, it's so different just from like the south and the north as well as like the central mountainous areas. Cool. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of really good recommendations for anybody else who might be planning a trip out there. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, like just hearing you talk about it makes me want to go. So I think you're doing your job, uh, on behalf of the Vietnamese board of tourism, HD. Go to Vietnam, (laughs) try to learn some Vietnamese. How to say hello is xin chào. And then if you say that, they will start talking to you in Vietnamese, especially if you look more Asian and, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, for me, I uh, I recently celebrated the second annual Vince Garal Day, which is a, a made-up holiday that my wife and I created, which is uh, something we celebrate the day after Thanksgiving on our version of Black Friday is, is Vince Garal Day. It's basically where we just start listening to Christmas music, and that is the Vince Garaldi Trio's uh, soundtrack from A Charlie Brown Christmas. That's like It marks the official beginning of the Christmas season for us. We go out and get our Christmas tree and all that stuff. So we did that that day. Um, that was really nice. Uh, I went to a special fan event in Hollywood for The Witcher, the new Netflix series starring Henry Cavill. And um, they had like a whole thing set up where you could like walk into the world of The Witcher. And it was kind of strange because we got to like my wife and I went and we got to go, you know, go through this experience where it was like they had performers and people dressed up in, uh, you know, I guess period appropriate or setting appropriate attire for whatever fantasy world The Witcher takes place in. And it was strange because we don't know anything about The Witcher. I've not read any of the books on which the series is based. I've never played any of the popular Witcher video games. So I was walking into this thing completely, um, you know, uh, I, I didn't know anything at all about this entire franchise. So uh, they had like a live horse there and they said that the horse's name was Roach, um, which <laughs> they had the sign set up where uh, it was basically like you t- you're supposed to like unburden yourself on this horse, like tell it all of your deepest, darkest secrets or like complain to it about people that are bothering you or something. And I felt so bad for this horse, like having to sit here and, and just listen to all these people complain to it all day. Um, but it was like a, a huge fan event and there was massive lines down the block in Hollywood and all these people uh, came into this thing. So, you know, I, some of the finer nuance and, and the points of Witcher lore were definitely lost on me because I, you know, walked through this thing before I saw the screening of the first episode. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure the fans actually, uh, you know, people who have been obsessed with this property for a long time got a lot more of that out of that than I did. In terms of the first episode, I'll just talk about that really quickly here. Um, I, there's a lot of Game of Thrones in this in terms of like both the, you know, the, the fantasy aspect, but also like some plot stuff and a, uh, which I won't get into, but also um, a couple shots in particular. There's there's one shot where uh, and longtime Game of Thrones fans will know it the second you see it. It happens like, you know, late in this episode where the same thing happens and it's framed in a very similar way to one of the most memorable shots in Game of Thrones. And I'm, I'm just sort of like, why are you trying to invite these comparisons, Witcher? What are you doing here? But um, Henry Cavill is pretty decent in the show. It's got some good sword play. I'm not fully on board, but I am intrigued. So for, I think that says a lot for me, somebody who like generally um, 
uh, pulls the ripcord and and bails out, out away from TV shows that don't immediately hook me. Um, this one, I'm not ready to pull the ripcord quite yet. So uh, I think that's that's a, as rousing a recommendation as I can give for The Witcher after seeing only one episode. But um, I know the whole season drops on Netflix on December 20th. So uh, look forward to that if you're into that whole thing. And then finally, I visited uh, Studio Movie Grill, which is a theater in Glendale for the first time. They asked me if I wanted to come out there and see a movie, and they were going to give me some food and stuff. I suspect it's because I looked up their, um, their, I looked them up on Yelp, and they didn't really have great reviews on Yelp. And I suspect this is sort of like a uh, an attempt to sort of um, counteract that a little bit, maybe like some. Uh, image rebranding reputation uh, sort of building exercise on their part but um, yeah this is a really nice theater it was super clean and the the seats are like huge and um, you know they've got like the mechanical uh, buttons where you can kick your feet out and all that stuff the seats are really big they have he- uh, heated seats like butt warmers and then they also have um uh, cup holders that have like refrigeration on them, which I'd never seen before. So I thought that was cool. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really nice theater in Glendale. If you are in that area and looking for a, a quiet, there wasn't, there weren't really too many people there on a Wednesday night. So if you're looking for like a quiet movie going place that, uh, has like, you know, decent enough food for, uh, movie theaters, then that's the place to go. I would say the only, like the biggest downside is that, there's not enough room between the rows for the people bringing you the food to be able to do so without really blocking the screen very much or to be able to do so in the way that they do at Alamo Drafthouse where it's like you barely notice that the people were there bringing you stuff. Um, so that that would be the one downside. But anyway, that's Studio Movie Girl in Glendale. Jacob, what have you been doing? I've had my nose buried in work, Ben. Uh, we're right now we're planning slash films big end of the decade blowout and we have literally dozens of things planned uh, just from freelancers and from this core staff just attacking the past 10 years from every angle possible so that's been pretty much if I'm not doing something directly related to like today's work I've been buried in that in some capacity and I'm feeling pretty excited and what we'll be doing is uh, deciding the top 100 films of the decade on a podcast you'll get to hear the entire discussion play out and hear us hopefully argue and agree and argue and agree and i'm really really excited about that we actually just finished the uh, nominating process everybody nominated their picks and let's put it this way there are 163 films vying for the top 100 slots so 63 films gotta go uh, and then we'll figure out the ranking beyond that uh but i already told everybody this uh so i want to share with the listeners as a tease uh, only four films received the nominations from all six members of the Slash Film staff. So that pretty much means that only 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 uh, six only, only four films were agreed upon by everybody that they deserve to be in the top of the list. And those four films are Arrival, The Social Network, Inception, and Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Doesn't mean they're going to be in the top ten or top five even, uh, but those are the four films that were on everybody's nominations list. So. I think it's a pretty good indication that we have a pretty fun, varied list, guys, right? I think so, certainly. Um, do you want to tease a couple of the individual best of the decade features that are coming, too? I mean, you don't have to go through the whole list because there's a whole lot of coverage coming, but any that you uh, are particularly excited about? Um, how about uh, each, each of you go around the circle. Uh, tell, the, tell the listeners one thing you're writing. We'll, we'll do that. Oh, ben, what are you um, on? 
Uh, I'm gonna work on the best domestically released, uh, like like American action movies of the decade. Um, uh, and uh, Rob Hunter, uh, a friend of the site and writer for us, is doing uh, best non-American uh, action films. So, uh, Chris, what are you working on? Uh, I'm doing most underrated films of the decade. Thank you. <laughs> All right, uh, HG, what are you working on? Oh, uh, no surprise here, but I'm working on a best animated movie of the decade list, and there are a few animes in there. <laughs> I will say we also have a uh, top 10 anime of the decade coming, it's in addition to that. And we also have um, a top 10 uh, animated television shows of the decade, like American television shows. So we're, we're getting animation from several angles here. Wow. All right. Yeah. Uh, Brad, what are you working on? Uh, I have um, been taking on the responsibility of figuring out what the best comedies were of the decade, and I've got a list of 20, and they are funny movies, because I love to laugh. <laughs> As a tease, we have another someone else doing the top 10 breakout comedic performers, so in addition to the funniest movies, we'll have one focus on people. And we also have you know things like uh, the, the biggest comebacks, uh, the biggest, most important reinventions, the filmmakers who define the decade. We were... Uh, we, ha- we, we have some very specific ones. We have some very, very broad ones. It's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. Lists I'm looking forward to that. Lists we won't be doing. Uh, best salads of the decade. Um, <laughs> f- f- favorite animal fights. Uh, I mean, now that you mention it, Brad, <laughs> favorite animal fights on film? That sounds like an awesome list. That, that's a good point. What were we thinking? <laughs> uh, well, Brad, let's go to you. What have you been up to recently? Uh, watching animal fights. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no. Um, so my girlfriend's birthday was earlier this week. And so uh, I took a day off and we went to Chicago to spend the day out there doing some stuff. Uh, we went to this um, small market called the Christkindle Market, which is a German uh, Christmas market that's set up in Daly Plaza in Chicago, where they have uh, it, it almost looks like a little village market. And they have uh, like handmade ornaments and Christmas decorations and other various holiday items. Uh, they have different foods you can try, uh, like uh, roasted nuts and like international candies and hot chocolate and pastry and just all this cool stuff that's there. And so I, I don't I had driven by it a few times just being in Chicago uh, during the holidays, but never checked it out until this time. And it's just it's a cool, uh, adorable little thing. It's um, it's a little pricey, kind of like going to, you know, a, a carnival or something like that. It's um, almost has prices that are close to like, you know, movie theater concessions prices or even like ballpark prices. You know, you're pay- definitely paying more for uh, things than you otherwise would anywhere else. But, you know, the, the experience is fun. It just it kind of gives you just a nice holiday feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it's enjoyable. You had some coffee when you were in Chicago? We didn't actually have coffee. We kind of just did this uh, just by happenstance because I, f- I forgot this was even a thing. But uh, Starbucks just recently opened the world's largest Starbucks that is actually a, a, one of their roasteries in Chicago. And we were on the Magnificent Mile just walking around to some various shops. And we happened to uh, stum- stumble upon it because it's on Michigan Avenue. And so we're like, oh, yeah, let's go and check this out. Uh, honestly, it's it's fine for what it is. It, it really is just a big Starbucks. It's it's cool because it has different levels with uh, different things you can do. It's not just one big regular Starbucks. There's like a level where they have uh, dedicated to experiential coffee. And there's a level where they have uh, a bar where you can get a lot of different coffee flavored alcoholic drinks. Uh, and of course, you can, you know, um, they have a lot of the actual roastery, you know, uh, equipment and industrial stuff on display there. Um, weird aside, the, the first time I've ever experienced this, there was a spiral escalator, which kind of weirded me out. <laughs> uh, 
because I had never seen one of those before. Have you guys ever seen a spiral mm. escalator? No. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's it was an escalator that just goes around in like a half circle up instead of just the straight up and down stairs. It was very weird. Um, but it was, you know, it's it is what it is. There's a lot of people there checking it out. Um, I would I would be interested to go back when I have time to actually try some of the more unique things it offers as opposed to just the regular Starbucks offerings. But it's definitely a big Starbucks. Uh, and then and then another random thing that we happen to walk by is uh, there's a big flagship AT&T store that is uh, on Michigan Ave in Chicago. And they had this uh, friends pop up, quote unquote, experience where they basically set up like a makeshift central perk. Uh, it wasn't a working central perk. They weren't like serving coffee and snacks, but they had like a photo op to sit on like the the friend's couch that they have set up there with the the, the display set behind it. They had some props from the show on display. And then they had this interactive thing uh, screen in the store where it went through friends uh, each year focusing on like uh, the different technology, like the old school big laptops and flip phones and all this stuff tying it into at and and like it was funny because it got towards the end once it got past the time that Friends was on the air, it was just generically talking about like phones and technology and trying to tie it into Friends. <laughs> um, but they did have uh, like Chandler's laptop on display there and his his beeper, and it's just it was kind of funny the way that the this the the big screen thing was talking about all this stuff is like how it's so ancient and oh look at these novelty items and it's like man I was around when this stuff <laughs> was like a cool thing (laughs) it just made me feel old (laughs) yep yep i feel you um okay so let's go into what we've been reading the only thing that i've been reading recently is i finally finished reading dune the frank herbert novel um from 1965 i it took me a long time to read this book i mean it's a pretty big book uh, it's pretty dense, but um, I, I wanted to read it because I know Jacob is a big fan of it. I think HC, you read it recently too, and the yeah. uh, there's a movie coming out. Um, I remember HC, you saying that you liked the book a lot. I kind of hated the experience of reading it. I think it took me a long time to read because I wasn't super into it, and I would just sort of dread picking it back up again and diving in because I, I felt like. Uh, I was really into the beginning of the book where there's a lot of like political intrigue and, um, you know, like setting up who these families are in this, you know, space world. And, um, you know, it's it's like a lot of uh, like Game of Thrones style sort of royal um, uh, scheming and, and politicking and all of that kind of stuff. And I was into that stuff. And then basically for like, I don't know, I would say the, the back uh, two thirds of the book is all sort of in this um this sand world the the dune planet and it's all like um i I don't know without really getting into spoilers about the plot or anything because i know the movie's coming up and if people want to go into that fresh i want to sort of honor that uh that require that that um uh notion for people but um i don't know i just found it very like repetitive and uh like there's a whole white savior narrative that I wasn't really thrilled about. Um, and, and the main character, Paul Atreides is like this, you know, almost like superhuman smart, uh, and like he has like this mega intelligence, the likes of which the universe had never, has never seen. And I just sort of like rolled my eyes every time they would talk about like how incredible he was, like pinpointing exactly what somebody would do at the, the exact time. And, I don't know. Am I the only person here who who didn't uh, enjoy reading this book, Jacob? Why do you why do you love Dune so much? Uh, first of all, I want to say every single thing you just said, every single criticism, 
is uh, not inaccurate, and it's been part of the conversation of this book for decades. So you're you are not the only one to, to feel that way. And uh, Dune being this tedious, boring white savior story has been the biggest criticism against it for as long as I've been alive, and perhaps longer. So this is not something that I think anyone would be mad at you for saying. <laughs> I like Dune in spite of everything you just said. I think Dune's world building is incredible. I think that the cultures, the fictional cultures it examines are rich with detail and it is unfortunately written by a white guy in the 60s. And that's why I'm, I'm thrilled that, that this world will be brought to life by you know, a filmmaker with modern sensibilities with the Nii Villeneuve's new film. Uh, I, I love Dune for so many reasons, but nothing you said is inaccurate or incorrect. Uh, Aishi, do you have any any uh, follow-up thoughts on Dune now that you've sort of had a chance to sit with it for a little bit longer? No, yeah, I still really liked it. Um, I, it took me a little bit to get into it as well, but I was also similarly hooked by the political intrigue and the scheming as you were. Um, and then when the book did this big 180 and turned into this myth, mystical uh, sort of uh, epic um, that I was a little bit, thrown for a loop but I still really enjoyed that because I just I love mystical shit I'm a huge fan of that kind of stuff <laughs> so I was also all down for it even though I was really wary of the uh problematic to say the least sort of um you know uh racially coded characters mm -hmm. but um I I just really enjoyed how wacky and weird and again like the world building the detail was just so so big and um immersive that i just ended up really enjoying it um and i i i i, I also saw like the criticism you have been but um i just i just really like that kind of big um sort of fable like story so mm -hmm. i was really in on the second half of dune yeah i'm very intrigued about the movie because i think they're supposed to be splitting this book into two films and i think i'm really gonna like the first movie and i'm really not gonna like the second movie if it's anything like the book but uh i i trust in denis villeneuve he's made incredible movies um you know he's the guy behind blade runner 2049 and sicario and uh prisoners and enemy and a, a bunch of great stuff so arrival soon arrival. to be in slash Our... films best of decades list. yes yes of course <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's jump into what we've been watching. Um, Chris, you and I saw 1917. You reviewed this movie for the site. I have I have to admit to you, I have it book, bookmarked, but I've not had a chance to read your review yet. What did you think about 1917? Uh, I really liked it. I thought it was going to be gimmicky because, you know, the whole thing is it's being sold as the, it's, it's set up to look like it's a one-take movie where it follows these characters, you know, across World War One in one unbroken shot. And I was worried. I was like, oh, that's going to be, you know, there's not going to be much more to it to that. But, you know, uh, it is a technical achievement. It looks amazing. I mean, Roger Deakins does the cinematography, and he, he does an amazing job of making it look like it's, it's one shot, even though it obviously isn't. But I was actually really impressed with the emotional stuff in it. There are, there, you know, there are some really big emotional beats in the film that really resonated with me. It, it, it takes time to, you know, get into uh, these characters heads and, and, you know, explore the, the horrors of war. And, you know, there's, it's a really like nasty movie. There's a lot of like horrific stuff in there, but there's these like moments where elements of, of beauty come shooting through all the, the mud and blood. And I was 
I was really impressed with that. So I, I liked it more than I thought I was going to. Yeah, I did too. I also thought that the one take thing would would kind of take me out of it. I thought I would kind of like be constantly looking for where they make the the hidden cuts, you know, because there's no way they actually did it in one real full shot like they did for like that movie Victoria, for example, recently. Um, so I was like, okay, what do you got? You know, like show me show me what you got, movie. And it actually like far super, uh, surpassed my expectations. I I'm right there with you where I, I found it to be a very emotional experience, like more so than I than I anticipated by a long shot. And I think the one shot aspect of it kind of fades away at a certain point. Like there, the blocking in this movie is so good that um, e- even though it's one shot and typically editing is used to, uh, you know, force the audience to look at certain things. I think this, or, or at least pay attention to certain things. I think the blocking in this movie, like there, are, there are shots where the camera, um, you know, is right up next to the characters, and then it backs away a little bit and like lets something else pass in the foreground, and you're you're paying attention to all of these different aspects. Um, it's just a, it's like a different visual language than what we normally see. So I was very impressed with it on a technical level, but yeah, also the the emotions really worked on me too. So um, I thought it was just going to be like a sort of a heartless exercise. And it, it, I came away like being like, I think this is one of my favorite movies this year. So uh, that was a big surprise for me, but um, I'm excited for the rest of you guys to see it. And I, I feel like Chris, maybe you and I might be arguing for like a, a couple moments from this movie to be uh, in our, um, you know, like favorite moments of the year. Uh, if we do that as a, a big podcast or something too. So, um, all right. So let's, that's 1917. I think it comes out in theaters. Do you have the release date in front of you? Day, actually. Okay. I think it comes out Christmas day. Okay. Yeah. So definitely add that to your watch list. Cause I think it's a hundred percent worth seeing. Um, all right. So the Irishman finally hit, uh, Netflix, Chris, you and HT had seen this at the, uh, New York film festival premiere. Um, it seems like you've been watching this one a lot, right? Uh, yeah, I watched it twice since it's dropped onto Netflix. I'm actually like in the middle of watching it a third time in, in chunks um, because I like this movie, in case you can't tell. Um, I, I don't know. I, I know people have problems with the length. I know people have problems with the pacing, but none of that bothers me. I mean, uh, when it, whenever a long movie is great, I want to spend as much time with that movie as possible. The other example I can think of is like Zodiac, which is a long movie that I never get tired of rewatching. And I just, I really love this movie. I love this world. And I, I never, I don't think I'll ever really get sick of this movie. So that's me. Uh, well, Chris, I'm not going to tell you that this movie's bad because it's definitely not. And, and, and uh, don't make me come through this <laughs> microphone and strangle you. No, I'm just going to say, uh, I, I want to be the voice for any listeners out there who have seen the effusive praise for this movie and kind of felt a little bit on the outside looking in. Cause I liked this movie and, and was certainly not in love with it. I just, I feel like, um, the final, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, where uh, Robert De Niro's character essentially like grapples with his aging and his life in a, a serious way is what I wished um, a lot more of the movie was. And it's I find myself in this weird place of like loving that part of the film, but not really um, 
connecting with a lot of what came before, but also at the same time recognizing that you need all of the stuff that came before for that last part to actually be effective. So uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I find myself sort of uh, on the fence with the Irishman in terms of like, I love the, the messages that it, it uh, departs at the end. But um, I guess speaking of the word departed, I, I, I would much rather watch like the departed like, you know, two or three times in a row than I would rewatch the Irishman. So I think that's our that's the biggest uh, <laughs> difference between us there, Chris. But um, it, I, I suspect everybody else on this podcast has seen this movie. I know, uh, Brad, you talked about it recently, too. Um, Jacob, have you seen it yet? Did you talk about it recently? Am I just forgetting that? Uh, yeah, I saw it in theaters when it was in that limited release, and uh, I'm very much on Team Chris here. Uh, I'm not going to say you're wrong, Ben, uh, but goodness, this movie really worked for me. Okay, good, good, good. All right, I just wanted to, I wanted to make sure that everybody uh, has had their chance to sort of weigh in on this film. Um, and I think Peter saw it as well, so maybe he'll be able to talk about that on the next uh, Water Cooler. Peter tweeted that he liked it but didn't love it, so you have an ally here, Ben. Okay, all right. It's always interesting to be allied with Peter on uh, <laughs> on film um, thoughts and, and takes sometimes because he has some weird ones, but uh, I look forward to hearing him talk about this movie too. So. We love you, Peter. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, Chris, Brad, and HT watch Knives Out, the new Ryan Johnson movie. Um, Chris, what did you think about it? Um, I love that. I actually, I saw this at TIFF, but my wife wanted to see it. So over the Thanksgiving weekend, we went and saw it and I, I still love it. I think it, it I, I liked it even more the second time. It, it's just so much fun. Brad, what'd you think? Uh, yeah, I also loved it. it um, it's just, it's so sharp and just well-written and you can tell Ryan Johnson really has uh, a love for the classic murder mystery. And he takes the, that formula and makes it contemporary without losing any of like what makes a murder a classic murder mystery work so well um i i think if it has one shortcoming it's that some of the uh social and political commentary that comes through at times feels a little forced and clunky that there is an overall thematic element of it that works very well uh by the time you get to the end i'm not going to spoil anything obviously but the there, there's some of it that is injected through uh throughout that didn't quite land as well even though i appreciated it um, but everyone in this movie is so great. I, I didn't realize based simply on the marketing or anything that Ana de Armas was the lead, uh, essentially. And Daniel Craig, uh, is just outstanding. I want to see him solve more mysteries until the end of time. <laughs> um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Chris Evans, Don Johnson, everybody is just so good in this movie. There's amazing performances, both big and small. And it's just, yeah, so much fun. HC, what'd you think about Knives Out? Uh, everything that everyone has been saying is true. It's such a great, satisfying whodunit um, in the vein of all the great Agatha Christie murder mysteries. I really love uh, Daniel Craig's um, Benoit Blanc and how much of a satire of Hercule Poirot he is, but still is a, you know, a competent detective. And I think that every movie from now on, Daniel Craig should just be doing the crispiest uh, deep fried of Southern accents because he <laughs> was just having a blast in this movie, as was everyone. I just really enjoyed to see this entire cast riffing and having the greatest time. And um, I do agree, too, with um, some of Brad's criticism. I do think some of the um, the social messaging is a little on the nose. I think it worked for the most part, but it was kind of a little just they, they hammered it a little too much at times, but um, I just really enjoyed it and how like visually just fun it was. So yeah, Knives Out, good movie. 
I want to respond real quickly to the um, social stuff because I think it works really well in the movie. Uh, but I also want to point out that in an interview with Ryan Johnson that ran on this podcast, he talks about how he wanted to create a film that felt like a, essentially felt like a period piece uh, before it could be a period piece. So if people watch this in 20 years, it can meet and say, oh, that film was set in 2019. Same way you can watch a movie and say, oh, it's set in 1936. So I think the social stuff works if you look at it like that. But maybe I'm being weird. No, I think you're right. There's like a long lens to it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I can appreciate that. I think it's just the way that it comes up in a couple scenes just feels shoehorned in there. Um, but at the, at the same time, my, I, I do forgive it to a certain extent simply because those conversations do arise in family conversation. And so it's not as if it's not natural as far as the characters are concerned, but the way it comes about in the movie just feels like, whoa, that came out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's see. What else do we have? Um, me and Brad and Chris all watched A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Um, why don't you guys talk about this one first? Chris, what did you think about this? Uh, this is, again, another thing I saw at TIFF and my wife wanted to see. So we, we saw that over the Thanksgiving weekend, too. And uh, it's it's very good. I actually liked this more this time than I did when I saw that TIFF. I didn't hate it at TIFF. I just thought it was kind of average, but I kind of liked it a lot more. This time, um, I do think the script is really like on the nose at times. And I, I'm not really as wrapped up in the story of the the cranky journalist as I think the movie wants you to be. But Tom Hanks is so good at playing Mr. Rogers and he really nails like the way Mr. Rogers talked that really like soft spoken way. He really gets that down really well and he makes the movie really worth seeing. Brad, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I liked it a lot, too. It's um, It was a little more odd than I was anticipating, uh, almost quirky in a way, because it's not your traditional biopic. And the way it's framed is done so uh, as if it were like uh, an episode of Mr. Rogers, but where, where they're telling the story of uh, this journalist and how he met Mr. Rogers. And I wasn't expecting that. And it was a little bit, um, I don't I don't know, disorienting at first, but I, I appreciated the craft that it went into, especially the way they utilize um, the like the diorama set from Mr. Rogers' original show and added certain elements to it. That it was it was a nice touch and it was re- refreshing in a way that it wasn't just your typical biopic. Um, I think Tom Hanks is outstanding in this movie. It, it's interesting though because I don't think he necessarily does this perfect uh, impersonation of, of uh, Fred Rogers. Uh, like Chris talked about, like the way he talks and. He, he does speak very well as Mr. Rogers, but it's not this impersonation. He more so just captures the spirit and has a little bit of the way that Fred Rogers used to talk as far as his like dialect is concerned. Um, but I, and I was really impressed just by how smitten I was with that performance. Despite that there's, there's almost something about Tom Hanks's extremely kind eyes that really reels you in. And like, it makes what he says as Mr. Rogers hit that much harder uh, in your heart and like he, he just has the most calming like beautiful expression on his face just the way he looks uh, you know it, it, into the the other character's eyes and I, that, that's what made it so touching to me and there are so many scenes that I was surprised that kind of got me emotional uh, about it but um, yeah so it's it's, it's a great movie I, I think I liked it more than I thought that I would but for reasons that I wasn't expecting interesting yeah i found it to be um 
kind of a middling movie with a great Tom Hanks performance. I, I thought he is absolutely the reason to see this thing. And and like Chris, I wasn't nearly as wrapped up in the journalist story. And frankly, at any time Tom Hanks was not on the screen, I kind like almost lost interest in the movie and was just sort of like looking at my watch and waiting for Tom Hanks to come back because he is so compelling in that role and the rest of the movie around it just feels very run of the mill and and sort of um like you've kind of seen the story before and it's not a very visually dynamic movie and even the drama that plays out is not like uh particularly new or or it, it didn't strike me as as super interesting so it was more just like a showcase for i thought it, the movie was more of a showcase for tom hanks as mr rogers and i think you guys are, are really like nailing the fact that he's captured the the spirit of mr rogers without doing an, an impression and like the, the voice work and all that stuff i thought it was more about the speed of mr rogers than anything like that's the fact that tom hanks speaks so slowly and deliberately in you know this fast-paced world that we live in right now like just the fact that he seems to really take his time and uh, you know to speak uh and and think about what he's saying it's it forces you as uh, an audience member to slow yourself down a little bit too and and the i don't know it, it's tough talking about this movie in the wake of the mr rogers documentary that came out what was that last year or the year before because it's really it's not the same story but the mr rogers of it all is kind of it kind of gives you the same feeling and to if to me the documentary is so much more powerful in that way because it's actually him and the emotions that he's able to elicit from people um especially at the end of that documentary there's this moment where basically you just see like a bunch of talking heads like break down and cry because of this big moment of silence that um that happens at the end of this movie and and a beautiful day in the neighborhood tries to have its own version of that and it's just not nearly as affecting um i, I don't want to get into spoilers but people who have seen both projects probably know what i'm talking about um so i just thought it was that was kind of an odd choice but um but yeah tom hanks is great in it and uh i think overall i like enjoyed the movie because he was in it and i absolutely would not recommend it if he wasn't in it so um it's sort of a weird one for me but that is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's in theaters right now. Um, Brad, you and I watched Klaus on Netflix. Is that how you say it? Is that, or is it Klaus or Klaus? I think the character refers to him as Klaus at one point. Yeah, it's Klaus. Okay. Uh, so what did you think about this film? It's an animated movie. Uh, Chris talked about it, I think, on the last water cooler that we did. Uh, Brad, what did you think? Uh, I was very surprised by how great this movie was. Uh, I, I think that great Christmas movies are few and far between. Uh, and animated Christmas movies, maybe even more so, because they often lean into silly slapstick stuff just for the kids, don't really have much of an original story. And this movie, first of all, it has absolutely gorgeous animation. And while it does have some comedy in it and some stuff that kids will enjoy, I, I love its approach to the mythos surrounding Santa Claus uh, and how it creates sort of an origin story for him without being blatant about it not like 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 guys this is where santa claus came from it comes about naturally and it does it in a really clever way and this it kind of felt like um an, an old school animated movie for me in the vein of like a, a an american tale or something like that it had a, a little bit of an edge to it and felt like it definitely kept grown-ups in mind and wasn't made strictly to cash in on kids who just want to go to the movies and eat popcorn and have a good laugh. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the, the, the voice cast is outstanding. It, it's a very touching 
heartfelt story. I just, I, uh, I think it's, I would go so far as to say it's probably a new holiday favorite for me and easily my favorite Christmas movie since probably Elf. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. I th- I think I was, I saw the trailer for this movie and sort of rolled my eyes at it and was planning on skipping it entirely because of all of the reasons that you said about like typical Christmas movie stuff. Like modern day Christmas movies are, um, yeah, t- good ones are really, really tough to find. But then Chris talked about it last week and said it was surprisingly good. And I was like, if Chris was won over by an animated Christmas movie on Netflix, I think this thing is going to be pretty good. <laughs> and I was surprised, or not really surprised, to find that that actually was the case. So um, thank you, Chris, for that recommendation. I really, really enjoyed this movie. I think the first five minutes or so, I my wife and I looked at each other and we were kind of rolling our eyes a little bit because some of the, the comedy was like a little rough and the, the setup, like getting that, that main character uh, off on his, to start his journey was a little rough, but within, yeah, five or 10 minutes, it, it sort of um, quickly leaves that stuff behind and uh, becomes this really, really um, gorgeously animated and uh, yeah, surprisingly uh, organic retelling of the, the Santa Claus origin story. So um, yeah, highly, highly recommend Klaus on Netflix right now. Uh, okay. So I, watched unbelievable the limited series also on netflix has anybody else here seen this i feel like peter talked about it at one point um but i I need to go back and listen to his uh his water cooler entry on that Uh, i don't remember if he actually finished the series but this is a, a mini series about a series of rapes in washington and colorado it's based on a true story and um it's all about these uh police detectives who realize that these uh, seemingly separate cases are all connected. Has anybody else seen this? No, nobody's. Oh man. All right. Well, uh, as you can tell from the subject matter, it's a little bit of a tough watch at times. There's some, some pretty, uh, rough imagery in there, but I think this is, uh, it's one of my favorite shows on TV of, of 2019. I think it's, it's a tremendously organized and, and acted and, directed series. Uh, Lisa Cholodenko directed several of the episodes. Um, it stars uh, Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver and Caitlin Deaver, and all three of them are really, really great in it. Um, yeah, like I said, it, it's kind of a hard watch. I don't necessarily know if I'd recommend like throwing this on with the family while you're, you know, hanging out uh, post-Christmas or, or something, but um, I think it's, it's like uh, Ava DuVernay's um, uh, When They See Us. It's a, it's sort of tough subject matter, but I think like essential um, TV. So definitely check that out. If you, uh, if you have the stomach for it, watch unbelievable. It's, it's very, very good. Uh, has anybody else here seen queen and slim? I had a chance to see this one recently. Anybody? No, I want to, yeah, I want, I want to try to see it, but I haven't had the time yet. Yeah. So I found a lot to like in this movie. I think it is, um, it's the directorial debut of Melina Mansukas, who's directed a lot of Beyonce videos and she directed the episode of master of none, uh, the Thanksgiving episode of the, I think it was the first season of that series, um, where Lena Waithe uh, comes out to her family and Lena Waithe co or I'm sorry, she wrote, uh, queen and slim and, uh, Mansukas comes in and she's making her feature directorial debut with this movie. And it's, um, it's a, a very powerful story and it has some like uh, incredible imagery in it. There's, there's scenes where these two characters who are on the run because of a, a police shooting gone wrong situation. Um, it, man, it's, it's so powerful in certain moments and the ending has such like an emotional wallop to it. It's tough to talk about without spoiling. So I'll just say 
that I recommend watching it. And I also recommend trying to read as much criticism of it as you can by a lot of the uh, critics of color that are out there. Um, don't just take my word for it because I, I know there are a lot of diver diverging opinions about this movie and uh, its effectiveness and, and um, you know, how it, it stands in the culture right now. So um, I'm, maybe I'll try to link to some of those in the show notes just to, to give people a jumping off point. But um, Queen and Slim is in theaters right now. And uh, yeah, I would recommend watching it. It's, it's a very powerful movie. Um, I also had a chance to see Clute for the first time. This is the, what, what year did this come out? 1971 movie by Alan J. Bakula. Uh, it stars Jane Fonda and Donald, Donald Sutherland. Um, Jacob, this seems like it would be something that you would like. Have you seen Clute? Uh, Clute is one of those movies I have not seen, Ben, but like oh. you, it's probably been sitting on the back of my radar for years. It has, yes. I've uh, seen Clute. I was going to go to you next, Chris. I suspected you might have. So, um, uh, okay, well, yeah, what did you think about it before I, I give my two cents? Uh, Clute rules, and Jane Fonda is insanely attractive in the movie Clute, so everyone <laughs> should watch Clute. I uh, agree about Jane Fonda. I think she is, like, this is one of the uh, the best Jane Fonda performances I've ever seen. I thought she was tremendous in this movie. She was doing so much. Um, it's it's one of these, like, uh, paranoid 1970s movies. Um, Wikipedia says that it, it's sort of, like, in this, uh, this trilogy, of this, like, loose trilogy of the Parallax View and All the President's Men, sort of, like, the same kind of vibe uh, going through, you know, from the same director. Um Man, I, I, I liked this movie a lot. I think Donald Sutherland in it is sort of like a, a wet paper bag. Like he it's it's really strange seeing young Donald Sutherland as somebody who only like primarily knows him from his old works. This is the youngest I've ever seen him. But uh, I just didn't really think he brought much to this movie. But Jane Fonda does enough heavy lifting in it um, as this sort of uh, sex worker who I mean, the, the story gets a little <laughs> a little um, bogged down at times, but uh, I think it's it's absolutely worth seeking out um, for this tremendous Jane Fonda performance. So that's Clute. Uh, it was on um, Turner Classic Movies was where I saw it. I think I saw that it, it might be coming to uh, the Criterion channel sometime soon, so maybe keep an eye out for it. it's on there now, actually. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, that might be where you can track that down. And then um, my wife and I also just sort of like burned through several of our famous uh, – or. Uh, not famous. Our our favorite uh, uh, annual Christmas movies that we watch every year. So we watched uh, Muppet Family Christmas, Frosty the Snowman, and Mickey's Christmas Carol. None of which I'm really going to offer anything new about. But uh, you know, it's Christmas movie season, so um, I just wanted to throw it out to you guys really quickly. Do you have any other? Chris, I know you're about to talk about one actually, a movie that you watch every uh, Christmas. But um, do you guys have like a, a particular time of year uh, where you? watch your favorite Christmas movies? Is it like right after Thanksgiving or do you wait until a little closer to Christmas itself? Um, let's just go around the, the circle. I want to know how you guys do this. Um, HT, how do you do it? You're going to hate me, but uh, I love watching Love Actually. And uh, my friends and I have actually <laughs> planned a watch, a sort of tradition of watching Love Actually together. And uh, we've added Die Hard to that to that um party to to make you feel better but yeah we I, <laughs> talk about whiplash i know but yeah um yeah i like to watch that and um elf is another go-to that i like to see around christmas time um yeah i'm just a fan of the season and we'll watch most any christmas movie except for polar express because it is terrible <laughs> brad what about you when when's your uh, time frame for christmas movies 
Yeah, pretty much uh, right after Thanksgiving as well. And I, I will also admit, just like HT, I actually love Love Actually. Yes, I know you do. <laughs> it's a, you know, and you know, in spite of its problems, obviously it has problems. Now, uh, but yeah, it's it's a very enjoyable, funny movie, and the cast is great. Um, but we, uh, my family and I, just recently watched uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is a, more of a Thanksgiving movie, but it still works for Christmas because it's still holiday themed, and that mm-hmm. that movie is so great. Uh, and I threw we threw on uh, Muppet Christmas Carol recently, and uh, my girlfriend, because she grew up in Zimbabwe, didn't grow up watching the stop motion animated uh, uh, Bass and Rankin mm, yeah. Christmas specials. So I showed her Santa Claus is Coming to Town and Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer for the first time, and she she had a good laugh while watching <laughs> watching those. Cause, yeah, wow, uh, what a surreal experience watching those like as an adult for the first time. Yeah, because they obviously they're classics, but man, they're so weird. <laughs> Um, Jacob, what about you? Do you have like a, a specific week or something where you try to knock out all your favorite Christmas movies? No specific week. Um, Up at Christmas Carol is the only one that happens every year. Other than that, it's kind of rotation on what we're looking for. And uh, Ben, Love Actually is mostly good, ex- for, except for Andrew Lincoln's character, who is a creep and a scumbag. And the fact that the movie thinks his character is a romantic is a blight on a movie I otherwise like. So I'll agree with you that uh, Andrew Lincoln's character, Love Actually, is as bad as everything else you say it is. <laughs> Actually, I will add to that that the story with Colin, I think, in in America is probably the worst storyline in Love Actually. That's the second worst. It, it, it is a bad, bad storyline, but that character is just a is just a big old goof as opposed to a creep stalker. So you've true, heard true. it here first. A couple of Love Actually fans are talking about bad stuff in Love Actually. We I, can I feel criticize like... things we love. It has <laughs> That's the whole lines. thing about <laughs> <laughs> loving movies. You can. Like dislike things about things you love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, Chris. So uh, let's let's go to you, and then you, we can lead into stuff that you've been watching lately. So how, how do you handle Christmas movies in the Evangelista household? Uh, we don't really have like a, a sort of like set time. It's basically any time this month, and we have like a handful of movies we watch. Um, uh, like Home Alone is one. I'm not like the biggest Home Alone fan, but my wife really likes it, so we watch that. Uh, what else? The Muppet Christmas Carol is the big one. Um, I, I try to watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life every year. I, tr- I also try to make my wife watch it, but she literally falls asleep every time we try to watch it. So that's really <laughs> Has she just ever great. finished it. No, we have never been able to. Every time I put it on every Christmas season, she makes it like not even like a full hour in before she just zonks out. So, so she, she sees all the suicide and death, not the redemption. <laughs> right, no wonder, right. no wonder she doesn't want to finish it. Right. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, what have you been watching recently, Chris? Um, so I guess I'll lead with my, my one Christmas movie I watch every year. And that's eyes wide shut, which is my favorite Christmas movie. And I know people will not consider that a Christmas movie, but I do because it's very Christmassy. There's, like a Christmas tree in almost every scene. There's Christmas decorations everywhere. And it's just about, you know, paranoia and frustration and uh, all this other stuff I really love. Um, honestly, it's probably like my second favorite Kubrick movie. My first is probably Barry Lyndon. And I just I just love Eyes Wide Shut. And I know some people don't like Eyes Wide Shut. And those people are wrong. I still have never seen that movie. I need to correct oh that my this God. year. Ben, so. watch it. Watch it on Christmas Eve. Gather the family around. <laughs> ben, I, I, I've worked with you long enough to know either. your tastes. Uh, ben and HT, both of you, I know you well enough and know your tastes well enough. I think you would both get a lot out of it. So I'm going to second Chris's recommendation. This Christmas, as your editor, I am ordering both of you to watch Eyes Wide Shut. 
All right. You should. We'll really okay. Uh, the other thing I watched is um, Hustlers, which is the, the J-Lo stripper movie. And I've been like avoiding this just because I was, I don't know, I, the trailers didn't look that great to me. And but people kept saying like, oh, it's it's really good. And I, you know, I got sent a copy on Blu-ray to review and I was like, fine, I will watch it. And I really loved it. Oh, man. Hustlers is great. It's so good, actually, that it's in my top 10 of the year. I'm not even kidding. It's it's so entertaining and it's so well made and it's I don't know Jennifer Lopez is phenomenal and like this is without a doubt like the best performance she's ever given like in her entire career and uh, if if you out there have avoided watching Hustlers check it out because it's great I'm surprised to hear that it's in your top 10 that makes me want to go out of my way to see it now because I was not expecting that high a praise yeah, it really it's it's like not in like the top five, but it's in that top ten. It, it's really good. Interesting. You're not in the minority, Chris. A lot of people are putting this in like their top ten for the year and really love it. They should. It's great. <laughs> and then what else have you been checking out, Chris? Um, I finally watched uh, Anna and the Apocalypse, which is something a lot of people have talked about. You know, Jacob's talking about it a bunch. Uh, it's it's now on it's on Hulu and it's on Amazon Prime. And so I said, fine, I will give this a chance. And I I liked it. I didn't love it. Um, I loved like the first 20 minutes, like the first few musical numbers are so good and so uh, just giddy and joyful. And I, I really, really like that. Um, it does this thing. It, it, it tries to do this thing that, that Shaun of the Dead did, does where it's both like a silly comedy with like serious moments. And Shaun of the Dead does it so well. And this movie, I don't think, pulls it off. Like, when it tries to get serious, the serious stuff just does not work. But the songs are really good. Uh, You know, the soundtrack alone makes this worth saying. So uh, I I enjoyed it. I didn't love it as much as a lot of people do, but I really did like it. I'm the exact opposite of Chris. I think that the serious stuff works better than the frothy stuff. Um, I think that once it becomes a full-fledged horror musical, as opposed to being a goofy movie with some horror elements, I was really more on board. Uh, but I think we both liked it. That's the important thing, Chris. True high five. Yes, agreed. <laughs> uh, HT, what have you been watching recently? Um, since I had two long plane trips, I got the chance to catch up on a couple of movies I hadn't seen this year. Although I was a little disappointed that um, Korean Air, on the way there at least, didn't have quite the big selection that I was I want to dive into, but I did get to see on the way to Vietnam, uh, Late Night, which is the uh, Mindy Ka- Mindy Kaling movie about a uh, young comedy writer who uh, gets a job at a late night talk show that she has adored all her life, and um, finds that she is sort of the the um, diversity hire, but works her way up and befriends the icy talk show host uh, played by Emma Thompson. And I really enjoyed this movie. I um, remember not really having a lot of expectations for it, even though I like Mindy Kaling's work. I think that her comedy writing, um, when it's good, it's great, but it's it can be very up and down. I watched all of The Mindy Project, and it's a show that I, for the most part, enjoyed, but um, it did have like a lot of problems. Um, and I actually enjoyed Late Night a lot for, I feel like, 
some parts that she kind of poked at her own tendencies to, for example, cast mostly white male leads as her romantic interests. And I think that her and Emma Thompson were really great and funny together and that the comedy um, was, it wasn't like a straight up comedy. It was more of like a, a dramedy in a sense, which is uh, why a lot I think a lot of people didn't like it as much when it first came out. But I really enjoyed that um, more sort of um, somber aspect and like, sort of like the look back into the uh, process of late night television. So late night was great, and I really enjoyed that. Um, That's on another... Amazon Prime right now, I think, right? Oh, yeah, I think so. I'm pretty uh, sure it's an Amazon movie, so I think they, yeah. uh, they picked it, it up yeah. from Sundance, yeah. Yeah, it's an Amazon Prime movie. It's there now. So you can watch it now on Amazon Prime. Um, another movie that I watched was Longshot, which I did not like. Uh, I have to uh, say this with a caveat that I did watch this on an airplane, which aggressively censored the movie. So I feel like I missed a lot of the punchlines oh, no. uh, that came in. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, uh, I just did not enjoy this movie. This is the... Um, originally titled Flarsky, as Chris will probably remember. And uh, it stars Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. Uh, Charlize Theron is a, um, the, oh, what is what, she? She's the Secretary of State. Of State. Or something? Yeah. yeah, Secretary of State. And uh, she hires Seth Rogen's Fred Flarsky, who's a gifted journalist um, and her former childhood friend, um, as her speechwriter. And they get into all sorts of shenanigans before, the, before they, uh, fall in love and do an unexpected romance. And um, I just I did not think it was a funny movie. Uh, I think that the a lot of the jokes, you know, probably because of the censoring, landed flat to me. Um, and I just was really bothered by the vague politics of this movie. I think that we, when we've had so much good, sharp political comedies like Veep or like Death of Stalin, which also was vague on the comedy, but was really smart in its sort of portrayal of uh, communist Russia. Uh, it just was really unfortunate to me that Longshot just did not care about the politics itself when it's about politics. Mm. So uh, I was just not, I was not into this movie. And uh, yeah, Chris was right when he made fun of Flarsky the entire time. <laughs> I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, what else did you watch? Um, other movies I watched. Uh, <laughs> I finally saw The Lion King, the new 2019 remake, and man, this is a terrible movie. Uh, um, well, I think that really watching it on a like a plane on a 12-inch screen when you're stuck in this in uh, a cramped quarters for 16 hours is really the best place to watch Lion King, or like the place <laughs> that it deserves. Uh, you didn't just, do the visuals any favors there, HC. I didn't, but also it's just so visually uninspired regardless of how much like a national geographic documentary it looked um and i just i just found like the shot for shot parts to be really just laughable especially like in the opening i was like wow they're really just redoing the shots except it's in 3d now and they can like move the camera around how cool um yeah i was really not impressed by the lion king and i was really um annoyed by how long the comedy bits went on, which I guess was to help pad the runtime to make it a, more than two hours, um, which was very needless. And so it was just bad. The comedy was like went on for too long and was not really funny and then very visually dull and uninspired. And um, the voice acting, too, I was disappointed by because I think Brad has talked about this before. And this has been a long running problem that I've had with casting celebrities as voice actors is that they don't really have the... Um, 
the uh, intuition when it comes to uh, voice acting, which I think is something that's incredibly different than screen acting. Um, There's just sometimes it just sounds really emotionless or like if they had physical gestures to go along with it, it would be more effective. But in just voice context does not work. Um, So, yeah, disappointed by The Lion King. Um, Even Billy Eichner and Seth, uh, Seth Rogen? They were the only ones that actually pulled it off, as well as John Oliver. I think it's telling the comedians were the ones who um, were best in this movie, except for Keegan Michael Key. I found his delivery to be really flat, which I was disappointed by. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Um, another movie I watched that um, I really enjoyed on the plane is Wild Rose, which is uh, a film that kind of passed me by, but I read recently an article about the uh, original song for this film that was written by, I think, Mary, uh, who was the... Uh, Mary Steenburgen. Mary Steenburgen, yeah, exactly. And I was really fascinated by that. So I checked out this film, and um, it stars Jesse Buckley as a, um, a Scottish woman um, ex and an ex-con who uh, is fresh out of prison, and uh, she aspires to be a country music star. Um, and she try, tries to find her, her way to Nashville, Tennessee to start her career. And this is a movie that um, I, for the most part, liked. It was like this really kitchen sink style um, uh, drama, character drama that I, I I liked for the most part. And then that like grew into love when uh, she sang that final song and I just started crying in the middle of the plane. It just, um, it's so emotional and so simple and yet powerful the emotions that it evokes. So um, it's, it's, you know, it is not game changing by any, uh, by any means, but um, the emotions are just so laid bare that uh, I really enjoy this movie. And Jesse Buckley is phenomenal in this role. I, I really liked it, uh, her performance and I liked uh, this film as well. So that's wild Rose, which um, I don't think is streaming anywhere, but if you get the chance to watch it, uh, Please do check it out. Yeah, I also really like this one. I saw it at uh, CinemaCon earlier this year. I think that character has a tattoo that says something like um, three chords and the truth or something along Mm -hmm. those lines. Like that's all you need for a great song. And I feel like that uh, mentality sort of um, doubles for the movie itself. Like you said, it's a pretty simple story, but it's it's just like really effectively told. And and Jesse Buckley's performance is uh, is terrific. I think I I didn't even recognize her when she was in uh, Chernobyl earlier this year as well. Like I was like, this is the same person. Are you kidding me? Like those performances are so different. I feel like um, it it really shows the range of that actress. And I I hope she's somebody that is with us and and delivering, you know, great stuff for a long, long time. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's completely accurate uh, Ben um, and the last movie I saw was Blinded by the Lights which is directed by Gurinda Chada and it follows a Pakistani teenager in 1987 England who discovers the music of um, Bruce Springsteen and becomes a mega fan and uh, basically starts to live his life by uh, the boss's music and uh, embrace freedom and uh, individuality and independence and um, it's a really fun like coming of age film it's really just like this jolt of joy um, that and I really I enjoyed watching it although I wish it became the full-fledged musical that it 
become it gets so close to being as I was watching it I was like I was I kept thinking wow this would make a really great stage musical um and it never completely does that there are some good um diegetic musical sequences where he's singing to uh, Bruce Springsteen's music and um it basically plays like a musical sequence but never like goes that far and uh, I just kept thinking that I really enjoyed this as like a full-fledged jukebox music jukebox musical um but um yeah it, it's still like really fun and really sweet and um just joyful so um yeah i i would recommend this too that's blinded by the light awesome uh jacob what have you been watching recently uh i watched a few episodes of the movies that made us the netflix series it's a uh, sequel series to the toys that made us and i never watched toys that made us but i was on the exercise bike and i said i need to put something on what's light and easy to watch so i, I decided to give this a chance and I really hate the presentation of the show. It has a real wild guy narrator. Well, hijinks. And I hate that so much. I almost turned it off immediately. <laughs> but the, the thing is, they have interviews with people who have such great stories. Like I watched, I don't, I don't like Home Alone, but the Home Alone episode is the best one of, this, of the season that I watched. Because it's not just Chris Columbus, you know, the director, uh, and Daniel Stern, you know, who, who plays Marv in the movie. But it's like the second AD and the cinematographer and the editor, uh, the unit production manager, all sharing stories from the set. And all of them having reached a point in their careers or have reached the age where they don't give a shit about hiding the truth or um, being or, or trying to make things seem tidy. It, it was just full of like the entire all the episodes I've watched have been full of people just sharing honest stories about their, their time making stuff like Die Hard and Ghostbusters and Home Alone and Dirty Dancing. And I really wish the presentation wasn't so campy and so like uh, Disney Channel in its approach because the content mm. itself is not. The content itself is like the blue collar workers on these classic movies sharing great stories and alongside the actual filmmakers. Uh, have, have anyone else watched this yet? Because I'm, I'm curious what you guys think. I've been meaning not. to, yeah, because I, I do like the toys that made us. Uh, and I was hoping that this series would be something more than just like the usual glossy. Oh man, we we have such fond memories of making this movie. So I'm glad to hear you say what you did. Yeah, there, I'll give you give an example. It was a great story that I'd, not, I'd never heard before, where um, where Home Alone was originally a Warner Brothers movie, and they shut it down due to uh, it going a million dollars over budget into pre-production, and Warner Brothers discreetly, uh, I'm sorry, Fox discreetly picked it up. Uh, so literally a Warner Brothers exec was going from room to room in the production offices, firing everybody, while someone from the production was going behind him after he left the room saying, nope, uh, Fox got us, we're back on. And so it was like really fun stories like that, stuff I had never heard before, uh, that like really bring it to life. So if you're on Netflix, each episode is like 45 minutes long, and I, I found it illuminating and fun, especially like hearing, you know, stories from people who aren't, you know, actors and directors, people who like got their hands dirty on those film sets. So that's the movies that made us on Netflix. Uh, over on Disney Plus, I watched childhood favorite, The Love Bug, uh, the first Herbie movie, the car with a mind of his own. And in the first one, yeah, Herbie is purchased by a uh, down as luck race car driver who turns into a champion with Herbie doing all the hard work. And this movie, I watched it maybe a hundred times as a kid, wore out the VHS tape. And this movie is freaking weird, guys. And it's so weird that here it is streaming in high definition on Disney Plus. Uh, I remember all the, you know, living car gets into hygiene stuff. I did not remember that it is set in San Francisco in the, in the 60s. It's, a, it's set, like, in, in when it was made. And, like, movies full of, like, really unique San Francisco touches. Like, it, uh, it makes good use of location. There are hippies and weirdos. And, and like, the, the culture clash is kind of present on screen in a way I found satisfying. It has a really good musical score. Like, really, like, uh, like really zippy, like, 
in your head musical score. And I had totally forgotten, I did not put this up as a kid, that the explanation for why Herbie may be a living car comes from uh, Buddy Hackett's character, who went to Tibet, had a spiritual awakening, and realizes that we've put so much technology in the cars, we've made our machines so powerful, that they have, that we, that we, and we spend so much time with them, that they, start, that they start to transform and evolve and think that they're human. So that's why Herbie is a living car. I never, I totally forgot about that. But anyway, love bug, and also, uh, it, it's a really emblematic of the 1960s live-action Disney canon. It's campy. It's too long. It's really not that great. But man, I, is it nostalgia trip? A dangerous nostalgia trip? Where I am probably recommending a movie that probably isn't actually good. I really enjoyed visiting Love Bug. Does anybody else have any strong childhood <laughs> memories of the Love Bug? I saw it when I was probably like five and don't remember it. I haven't revisited it since, and it sounds like I probably shouldn't. But did, did anybody else grow up watching this movie? No, never. Anyway, uh, all the sequels are also on Disney+. Plus. Those ones I remember even as a kid thinking they weren't especially great. So that's the love bug on Disney+. Plus. And finally, I watched The Girl on the Third Floor. This is a, a, a new film from uh, Travis Stevens. A, he's usually a producer and writer for a lot of really cool uh, genre films, indie films. And this is, I believe, his directorial debut. And it stars uh, former wrestler CM Punk, who's actually really good here, kind of doing a Bruce Campbell-esque performance as a, uh, a, for, a guy who has barely escaped uh, being prosecuted for a crime, moving to the Chicago suburbs and trying to renovate a uh, haunted house uh, for his family. And uh, it's essentially a movie about a a house that kills toxic men and it's about a extremely bad bad person who faced off as a haunted house that has a vendetta against men who abuse women and it is it reaches evil dead levels of gore and craziness and cm punk this is his first i believe leading role in the film and he's really good actually he's, he, he has a self-effacing quality that really works and He's not afraid to make himself look bad. He's very physical, and he has a cartoon face. Like he can, he looks like a cartoon come to life, which serves the material really well. Uh, that is uh, the girl on the third floor. I rented it on Amazon. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere yet, but it's worth a few bucks if you want to rent it. Do you think CM Punk is going to be the next big like wrestler turned actor? Uh, man, I don't think he has you know the mainstream appeal of, of the rock. Uh, I mean, like I know WWE fans loved CM Punk. Uh, he, he was, he did not quit wrestling willingly from our stand. There was a big clash with him and the creatives there, but I would love for him to like get more lead roles because I'm not sure what his range is, but there's an undeniable presence to him. There's an undeniable, uh, Bruce Campbell esque. I am a Looney Tunes cartoon come to life. I'm going to do the craziest shit imaginable with a straight face. Uh, and I, not everybody can pull it off. And I feel like it's a unique thing that is unique to Bruce Campbell and professional wrestlers. So I hope we see more of them. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Brad, what else have you been watching? I went to a press screening of Little Women uh, when I was in Chicago earlier this week. Uh, and it is one of my favorite movies of the year. Uh, it is a, an outstanding adaptation of Little Women. Uh, Greta Gerwig manages to make it feel like it's a modern story without losing like the classic sensibilities. Um, not in a way that feels like, like Dickinson or anything like that. Um, and the ensemble cast here is just, wow. Uh, it's been a long time since I felt like a cast has had such good, lively, uh, infectious chemistry. Every, everyone is so great in this movie together. Um, I, I was just so enraptured and just caught caught up in this movie simply because of how great the performances were. But it also takes an, a great approach to the story too. It's it's uh 
not a linear telling of the story. It's uh, it cuts back and forth in time, which I actually think think makes it stronger. And I I find myself just like falling more and more in love with this movie as it went on. And I was more surprised uh, that I loved this as much as I did. Man, that sounds awesome. I'm very jealous of you. I'm looking forward to seeing this. It's like one of my most anticipated movies of the rest of the year. So uh, I know me and HG both are, are looking forward to this one a lot. HG, you get to ah, see this one soon, right? I've been looking forward to this forever. But yes, I'm seeing it next week finally. And I'll be reviewing it for Slash Film as well. Awesome. Uh, what else have you been watching, Brad? Uh, I watched a few episodes of Nailed It Holiday Edition. Uh, I've been, I had been enjoying uh, Great British Bake Off recently. And my girlfriend and I wanted to watch something a little bit different since we don't have any other episodes of that to watch right now. And we decided to give this a shot, mostly because uh, I like the celebrity guest judges. And I also heard that Paul Shear uh, was a contestant on the show. And we haven't quite gotten to that episode yet. But uh, we watched a couple. And I got to say, I the show is entertaining to a point. But it's just so much more obnoxious and over the top than Great British Bake Off that it's kind of grating at times. Uh, like, I love Jason Mantzoukas, and I love his energy, um, but that combined with Nicole Byers, the host, I'm just, I was just like, whoa, this is a little too much, guys. Uh, thankfully, the, the episode with Maya Rudolph uh, toned things down a little bit and was a little more fun. The most entertaining thing to me so far is just, man, how, how bad these baking uh, projects turn out to be. Like, it is, it is so laughable to see how poor these people's instincts are when it comes to doing things properly and getting things done. And there's definitely an aspect to it of where the, I think that they intentionally give the bakers less time than they probably would need to actually pull this off, even if they were somewhat skilled bakers. Um, and it's it's very funny from that perspective, but I just wish that it was a little less crazy. I, I just feel like they're trying too much for the, whoa, look at this wacky baking show. <laughs> Sounds like it has that in common with the, the, with the movies that made us a little bit. But. Yeah, cr- Chris, you, you like nailed it, don't you? Do you? How do you feel about that? I love it. I gotta say, I tried it once months, like when it first started, and I was actually in that same boat where I was like, oh, this is too wacky for me, but then I gave it a second chance, and I don't know, it's really it's really grown on me. I, I, I love it. Um, I actually, I, I love the Jason Manzuka's episodes, because he, he, they're so, like, insane, and he's just, like, constantly screaming, and that can be annoying, but he makes it funny. Like there's that just to me shows how like genuinely amusing he is as a performer, because I've seen other people who do that, that shtick where their whole thing is like just screaming and it gets really old, really fast, but he finds a way to make it work. And I don't know. I, I, I really like it just because it's very uncomplicated. I can just watch it. And uh, I hate this term, but you know, turn my brain off. So, yeah. I, so I, you know, I, I love it. All right, that's Nailed It Holiday Edition. That's on Netflix right now. Uh, let's jump into what we've been eating. Brad, uh, as per usual, you're eating a bunch of weird stuff. So what what's <laughs> on your what was on your menu recently? So uh, it, along with everything else I did in Chicago, my girlfriend and I ate at this place called Italy, uh, which is this big, like, two-floor uh, combination Italian uh, grocery market with a bunch of... Uh, smaller restaurants in it, like uh, cafe-style stuff and, and things like that. And my girlfriend had been wanting to go there for, for a while, so we finally checked it out for lunch on her birthday. Uh, we went to the part that's called uh, La Pizza and La Pasta. Pretty simple, um, but they have uh, Neapolitan uh, pizza, and they have delicious, you know, like made-from-scratch pasta. Uh, and, man, this was so good. Um, 
normally I'm not like the biggest fan of Neapolitan pizzas because I like the the spread of cheese usually on it and that kind of thing. And the Neapolitan does like the dallops of mozzarella and stuff. Uh, but the flavors and with this pizza were so good. Like the the crust was perfectly thin. And normally I don't eat all of, like the crust on a pizza, but this one was just so perfectly baked and and crisp and delicious. Um, and they had spicy salami on it, and the cheese was was enormously satisfying. Uh, and the pasta that we had was even better. I wish I remember exactly which pasta we had, but it had a creamy uh, ricotta um, sauce that went with it, and also um, Italian sausage uh, and a, um, a white truffle. Um, touch i don't know how to describe it but it was delicious <laughs> it's I'm, I'm i'm not an italian chef um but it was it was delicious easily one of the best pasta dishes i've had in in such a long time and the, the whole place itself is just really cool it's it's chock full of stuff that is imported from italy so they have a lot of like italian sodas uh they have they have gelato there they have all these this pasta and bread and ingredients and uh sauces and just uh it's it's awesome there's so much cool stuff there and it's uh, it's definitely a little um the market itself is a little bit pricey, as you would anticipate, since it's imported stuff. Uh, the restaurants, though, are not too bad. It's no more expensive than if you were to go to, like, uh, a chain restaurant, and the food is infinitely better. Yeah, definitely. There's um, there's a few Italy locations around the country. I know there's one in New York. There's one here in Los Angeles. Uh, obviously, Chicago. So, yeah, definitely. I, I would second that recommendation. Like, I've been to the one in L.A. a couple times, and the food is always tremendous. So, um, yeah, that's Italy. Uh, what else have you been eating, Brad? Uh, so on the candy side of things, I found some things that I was very excited about. Um, so back when I was a kid, there was they re- released different variations of Twix for like the first time ever, and it included uh, included peanut butter for the first time. But the one that I loved the most was Twix cookies and cream, and this is something that has stuck with me since I was a kid because I only ever found it a couple times, but I remember just loving it so much. And Twix has still been my favorite candy bar for the longest time, the, the regular one. And I just always hoped that they would bring it back. And they finally did this year. Um, so far, it's only in the form of Twix minis. But I was so excited. And uh, I will say that it's still good. And I don't know if it's because I've built it up in my mind so much from being a kid and just remembering how good it was. It wasn't quite as good as I hoped. And I think some of it is because Oreo has done a better job of doing cookies and cream in the form of a candy bar with their own Oreo chocolate bar with cookies and cream filling. Um, but it's still a pretty good, pretty good Twix bar. It doesn't taste remarkably different from a Twix aside from the absence of caramel. Um, but it's, I, I still enjoyed it. You know, uh, I guess I'm still chasing that, that childhood Twix dream though. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a, a different Kit Kat that you ate as well, right? Yeah. Kit Kat came out with a new, uh, it's they're they're calling it duos and it's, uh, it's a mint duos flavor where it's part, uh, dark chocolate on the bottom. Um, and then a mint chocolate on top with the regular wafer in the in the middle. And this is great. Uh, it tastes like an, an Andy's mint candy bar, but with the Kit Kat wafer in between, which is my jam totally. I love mint chocolate. Uh, I don't like dark chocolate by itself, but when it's paired with mint chocolate, I'm all about it. And it's that's great. So that, that's all in stores everywhere you can find it right now. Um, and then I when we were at the, the, the market, the German Christmas market in Chicago, one of the places they had had a bunch of like international candy and so uh ritter sport is a, um this this great chocolate um that they have different flavor variations on with different fillings and two that i hadn't seen before uh one of them was had cornflakes bits of cornflakes in it and the other one had uh like a, a biscuit filling which is like a, a um rather as the uk it's, it's a cookie filling basically mm. um and both were fantastic the cornflakes was so good the biscuit one was my favorite 
Um, just because it reminds me of the British biscuits that have like the chocolate on them that are a little bit buttery and good. Uh, but those are good. Ritter, Ritter Sport chocolates. If you ever see those, like they oftentimes have them in like the international aisles at grocery stores. They'll find them with a lot of other British chocolates and stuff like that. Those are good. Cool. All right. That's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Let's go around the circle really quickly and tell people where they can find more of our work online. Jacob, let's start with you. Uh, Slashfilm.com every single day. And I'm on Twitter where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. HT. Also slashfilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at htranbui. Brad? Slashfilm.com, at Ethan underscore Anderson on Twitter, and my podcast, Go Flicks Yourself. Chris? Believe it or not, I'm at slashfilm.com. Also, I'm on Twitter at cevangelista413. <laughs> I am also at slashfilm.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location and case we mentioned your email on the air and don't forget to rate and review the podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we will talk to you next time ben yes uh i have to go quickly i am in a hurry so i have to open up the grandchildren book of insult defense in front of me by louis sapien and move as fast as i can okay all right i'm up to the egotist section uh ben if you're really self-made you have no one to blame but yourself <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, Brad, I hear you laughing. You claim you're self-made, but too bad you left off the working parts. Oh ah. no. Oh, HT. When she brags that she's a self-made woman, you can't help wonder who interrupted her. Oof. Mm. Oh. And Chris, he'll never install machines that can do employees' jobs. When he talks, they can, they couldn't listen and nod. Hmm. Mm. We should end the show right now. <laughs> yes. Goodbye. <laughs>